you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. I continued going to as many AA meetings as I could. There was still so much pain inside and so many cravings. I literally wanted to drink every day. It didn't it didn't run me, but it was there. It was a constant nagging. Passing liquor stores or just seeing commercials would just set off that craving and I just wanted to drink. I, I just wanted that feeling. I wanted that edge taken off. And I started realizing that I couldn't go into restaurants that had a bar that it was just a lot easier to just to stay away from it. So I continued in the meetings and I would listen and Susan and I would sit together and there was this one old couple of ladies that sat in the back table and they were pretty old and their names were Louise and May. Now May had owned a a beauty parlor, I guess you could call it that, that was in a double wide trailer kind of situation and she was kind of like the the town hairdresser of Smyrna at that time before she'd gotten sober. Well, May had been one of her customers, and I guess she would go to her and have her hair fixed every week. But they were a pair, let me tell you. They both had these huge hairdos. I think, I think that Louise's might have been a wig. But they chain-smoked, they wore, May wore these dark glasses, kind of like the kind that turned dark on the inside, and they would sit there and they would listen, and they were really kind of angry looking, and I remember Louise would raise her hand after some young person would talk, and if that young person had cussed in any way, she'd raise that hand and she'd say things like, Cursing is not a sign of spiritual growth. And they were kind of mean. And so Susan and I would laugh and be like, God, if we can ever get their approval, we'll be like, we'll know we're going to make it. But it was like they just, they really, really wanted things to stay old fashioned. And you could tell they were just sort of stuck in their ways. And But we loved them anyway, and we would say hey to them, and they wouldn't even look at you. It was pretty hilarious looking back on it. But this one Friday night, 
I had gotten invited to go to a birthday party at Tallulah's, the gay bar that I used to go to where Michael's mother was the kitchen manager. Well, this lady from the old apartment complex, Pam and Diane, these two gay women, it was Pam's birthday. And they had gotten my phone number and stayed in touch with me. And so she invited me to this birthday party. So this was going to be on a Friday night. Well, I went to the AA meeting before, and I had never, ever raised my hand. Like when they open the meeting, they ask for if anybody's got anything they want to talk about or a topic or et cetera. When the man opened the meeting, and it was a big, big meeting on a Friday night, my hand shot up. And I was like, oh, God, how am I going to even say it? And he says, yeah, what do you want to say? And I said, well, what do you do when you're invited to a birthday party at a bar and you really want to go? That's all I said. Well, that opened up the, the opinions. Here we go. And I sat and I listened to all the people pretty much blast me about you know, you're going to get drunk, you don't need to go to a bar, I mean, on and on and on. And most of the people had, you know, kept it to themselves about their own experiences because the whole premise of Alcoholics Anonymous is to share your experience, strength, and hope. It's not about preaching to somebody. It's about what did you do in a situation like that. So I did get some good feedback, and of course I did get some glaring, opinionated some of the holy roller, big book thumper type people saying shit to me. But there was this one woman that was sitting there and she raised her hand. I'd never seen her before. And she was an older woman, maybe in her late 60s, gray, um, kind of blonde. You could tell like hair coloring, thick glasses. She had this really thick, thick New York accent. And she said some really profound things, and I listened to her. And there was another lady sitting beside her, this attractive woman, maybe in her 40s. And so after the meeting, they came up to me, and she introduced herself as Ellen. And she said, this is my sister, Carol. And she's from Brooklyn. She was from Brooklyn, New York, and she was just there visiting her sister who had just moved here. My sister's just moved to Atlanta from Brooklyn, and I'm just here visiting. Well, the sister, Carol, she had these really green, light, light green eyes. I always notice people's eyes because, you know, I'd heard this eyes are the windows to the soul kind of thing somewhere in my life. But she had these really green, light green eyes. I'd never seen eyes like these. And they were smiling. She had smiling eyes. And she was a really attractive woman. And she just stood there and listened to her sister talk. And the sister was kind of, she'd been sober a pretty long time. And she was kind of talking to me, giving me a pep talk. And so I listened. And during this whole time, my friend Teresa, the real country Elvis impersonator, she had started bringing this girl to the meetings with her who wore a USA jacket. And I asked her, I said, what's that jacket she's wearing? She's like, oh, she's the strongest woman in the world. She's, she's in the Olympics. I said, what? 
she has, she was in the Olympics for power lifting. And I was really like, are you kidding me? And she said, no. And literally this person had been in the Olympics and she was huge. She was bigger than me. She had blonde hair, sort of favored me in a very, very minuscule way. And, but they had kind of started coming to meetings together. And I was just happy that Teresa was coming to the meetings because Teresa had been kind of called the silver slipper. They nicknamed her the silver slipper because every time that she got her silver chip, which was the 30 day chip, she would go back out and drink. And she really, really struggled with staying sober. But she would come with this girl, the strongest woman in the world person, and they were kind of in and out. So this particular night, though, I came out of the bathroom and this visitor was there, and the one with the green eyes, Carol. And she says, well, are you going to give us a ride home or not? And I was real puzzled. And apparently what had happened was her and her sister, the New Yorker, had gone out to get in their car and their car battery was dead. Well, Teresa and her new girlfriend, the strongest woman in the world, were driving through the parking lot. And Carol and her sister, Ellen, they thought that that blonde girl was me. So they said, hey, could you give us a ride home? My car won't start. So there was a big confusing moment there. So I was more confused because I didn't know what was happening. But I just said, sure, I'll give you a ride home. So I get the two New Yorkers in my Toyota Corolla and I drive them to an apartment in Smyrna. It was this really nice apartment. It was on a lake. And so they said, would you like it to have a come up and have a cup of tea? And cup of tea? What? Like, I'm from Georgia. We don't have tea. But I said, yeah, just because I thought they were interesting. And I went up and we had tea, hot tea at night. And I listened and I listened to Ellen. And she was so different than anybody I'd heard in AA groups. I really liked what she was saying. She was so blunt and direct. And it was just so fun to listen to the accent. Well, her sister Carol with these green eyes sat across the table and she watched me and listened to me. And finally, out of the blue, she said, so where was the party you were supposed to go to? And I got real scared. And I said, uh, it was just at a bar. She said, what bar? I go, oh, just a bar downtown. What's the name of it? And I said, Tallulah's. Have, do you know what I'm? Do you know where that is? She says, "Oh yeah, I've been there." Well, what what she was telling me was that she was gay, and apparently her sister, I guess maybe the sister knew. I don't know, but you know, you learn how to talk in these code ways. You learn how to understand people and talk between the lines because it's a taboo. You can't be open. We're not there yet in our society. So it kind of struck a chord in me. And as I was leaving, she handed me her phone number and she said, if you ever want to get together and have coffee, you can give me a call. I'm here. I'm new and I don't know that many people. You know me, I'm starving for attention and affection and anybody to pay attention to me. So I got all excited. I took the number, but I didn't call. I 
I didn't call. I just held on to that piece of paper. So I'd started my new job at Silk Greenhouse. Now, what the fuck is that? This place was a new trend. Silk flowers and silk trees. I mean, I had no idea what this was about. Well, this new job, this building was a huge, huge warehouse type space and they carpeted the whole place. It had windows surrounding the entire thing so it was very open and light. So Rosemary, my new boss, had brought me in, and and I met all these other stock people, and I was going to be a stock person. And there were all these designers. They had this back room, and it had all these these uh, designing stations. And there, Terry had her designing station, and there was this guy named Bob, and he had worked with Terry at Riches, and he was about six five, and he was real thin. And he was like a gay Opie Taylor. He had red hair and <clears throat> kind of big ears like like Opie Taylor. And, and he was real young looking, but he was in his 30s. And then there was Ray Dorman. And Ray was this big, heavy set kind of guy. And he had a real trim beard. He was a gay guy. And he was just there as Rosemary's sidekick. Real funny. And then there was this woman, this old woman, and she smoked one of those long, dark, like, cigarettes. I think it was called Moore, but it looked like a baby cigar. And her name was Dorrance, and she was like this prima donna. And she was the kind of woman, like, I guess what they would call back in the old days a fag hag. And she, gay men flocked around her, and she was hysterical. Hysterical. Like these these gay guys in Dorrance, they were real sarcastic and real funny. I mean, just this humor was hilarious. And then there was this one guy named Arden, and he was real quiet and he wore glasses. And I didn't know, but Arden had AIDS. And he was very kept to himself, and I think he was going through some treatments and things. Well, We had to, like, put this store together, so they brought in all the fixtures on these semi-trucks, and we had to lay it all out, and then all the products started coming in, and it was semi-truck after semi-truck, and we would unload the trucks, and it was hilarious, and so I was able to get Teresa, my country friend, the Elvis impersonator, a job, and then I got Susan a job. And I got Joni from AA. She had an eating disorder. She was like bulimic and anorexic. I got her a job. So Rosemary trusted my judgment. And there we were setting up this shop, this huge thing that we knew nothing about. And it was like these trees and these plants. And I remember I would be like pricing stemmed flowers. Now, this is way before any place like Michael's or any kind of Christmas shop. There was never been anything like this. And so we were not prepared for the kind of business we were going to entail. But I would just price these flowers. And I remember I would read the botanical name on the box. And I would read the sort of the, the slang name. 
and it would have like the different irises and different daffodils, narcissus. I mean, it was like I was learning these plants. And if you price 500 of the same stem flower, you're going to learn it. And I had no realization until later in my life that all this repetition of all these learning these plants was setting me up for something. And I remember hearing Gail in a meeting, and this was Eileen's sponsor, and I remember hearing her say, everything that we do is preparing us for what's next. Every single thing that we do is preparing us. So you need to do it with integrity. You need to do it the best of your ability. She said, if you get hired cleaning a toilet, you need to clean that toilet to the best of your ability because you're being prepared. You're constantly being prepared. Well, that really, really resonated with me. And so everything I did at Silk Greenhouse, I did to my fullest potential. I loved being at that job. This was an unbelievable job. It was fun. Everybody was having fun. It was happy. I had never in my life experienced an environment like this. And Rosemary was our fearless leader. And she had never fucking run a damn silk flower place. Rosemary started telling me her story. Rosemary carried a gun in a briefcase when she was a cocaine dealer. And her story was hilarious and it was fascinating. And we would just, we would just share our stories around her desk while we would have our coffee break. Of course, everybody was drinking coffee like coffee fiends because that's what you do when you're early in recovery. And over the coffee pot one day, I brought in a pitcher and I stuck it over the coffee pot because I would say something that was sort of a saying of mine that I'd learned a while ago. And it was, Jill, do you want a cup of coffee? Good. Go get us one and you can't drive my car. And it was Regina. And I, would, I stuck her picture over the coffee pot sort of like a shrine to Regina. And everybody at Silk Greenhouse started saying, Jill, do you want a cup of coffee? Good, go get us one and you can't drive my car. And it was all out of, out of love and good spirit. I loved Regina and I'll never forget though, sticking her picture over that coffee pot because nobody there knew the story. All they knew is that saying. But our time at Silk Greenhouse was some of the funnest times that I had ever had in my life because I wasn't drinking. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was enjoying myself. But I still had that nagging at me. I still had a lot of guilt. I still had a lot of fear. And this one night, though, I decided I would call this Carol person. And so, in fact, I didn't call her. I, I, 
I looked at the sheet of paper and I thought, no, you know what? I'll just go by there. So I went by her apartment and I knocked on the door and I took this little kind of teddy bear because we had all these things at the store, at this huge store, all these like, you know, stuffed animals. I mean, all kinds of shit. But there was this really cute little stuffed bear. So I took it and I went to her door of her apartment and I knocked on the door. Well, she came to the door and she opened it like with the chain still there. And she looked at me like, what are you doing here? And I, she said, uh, well, hello, can, can I help you? Uh, and I go, hey, I just, uh, I just thought I'd come by and say hey. So she takes the chain off the door. And she opens the door a little bit. And she said, you just decided to drop by here? in that New York accent. And I said, yeah, I just, I just wanted to come by and say, Hey, and I had that bear behind my back and she was real kind of disturbed. And I was real puzzled because I thought like, why wouldn't anybody want to see me? Right. She goes, well, uh, I'm not, I'm really not prepared for company. I mean, I, 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 I don't really, um, I don't, I'm not accustomed to people just dropping by my house. And I said, well, um, I, I just thought I'd drop by for a visit and say, hey, and, and, and I pulled the bear out. And I said, I just brought you this. Well, she kind of softened a little bit and she just was real confused. And so she says, well, come on in. And so she made hot tea. Here we go with the hot tea. And we sat there and we started talking and I stayed for several hours and we just talked and talked and of course, I'm getting like this major crush because, see, here's the thing. You always want what you can't have. And and I think I have that, that problem. I think I have this problem that, you know, I go, I'm attracted to people that don't want me. I'm attracted to people that aren't attracted to me. But I'm going to make you love me. I'm going to make you love me. And so I guess I sat there and I went on this whole journey of I'm going to make you love me. So we kind of started talking and we kind of started talking on the phone and I got obsessed with her, of course. So anyway, I continued going to meetings and I continued trying to talk to my sponsor, Eileen, and Eileen started having some depression and I still adored her, but I could tell that she started really getting into a funk so everything I would ask her, talk to her about, I would, I would say, can you ask Gail what she thinks, which was her sponsor? Well, this one Saturday morning, I had been watching Gail from a distance for a really long time. And every Saturday after the Saturday women's meeting, there was this one, this particular group of women that Gail was a part of. She was kind of like the ringleader, but she didn't say much. They just kind of followed her around. But these women were all the sort of put-together women. There's actually pecking orders inside of AA meetings. Well, these women, they were the ones that were dressed nice and looked like they had kind of gotten their shit together. And they just seemed a lot more together than the new people off the street or the neurotics. You know, they just, I don't know, they just had something 
And and the thing about finding a sponsor, what they tell you is they tell you to listen closely. And they tell you to look for a sponsor that possesses what you want. Now, in the beginning, I thought, does that mean like if they have a good car? Like, what do you mean what you want? I didn't even know what I wanted. But after watching these women for months and months, I knew that I wanted this particular light that was in this woman, Gail. There was a light in her. There was something that glowed and there was a peace. There was a peaceful look that was over her face. And so this particular Saturday morning, I would watch them leave and they'd always go to this Mexican restaurant down on South Cobb Drive called Mexico Lindo. Well, they were walking out of the door and I was there by myself. I was just going to hang around at the AA club because I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have any kind of hobbies. I didn't have anything. And if Susan was out busy or whatever, I didn't have anybody to be with. So I would just sort of hang and Teresa was in and out, in and out. So this one day, though, I was alone. And they're walking out the door, and Gail turned around, and she looked at me. And she said, and she used her head like a, kind of like a, want to go? And she did her head like, come on, want to go? I will never, ever, ever forget, want to go? A a chill went through my body, and I said, yes. She goes, come on. And I went and I followed her in my car down to Mexico Lindo. And I sat at this big table with about 10 women, and I didn't say a word. I ate chips and salsa, and I listened. And I was like, I made the cut. I made the cut. I felt like I had just made the cut, but I didn't want to fuck it up. I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to screw it up, but I sat and I listened and I listened and they laughed and I wanted to laugh with them. I wanted to understand how they were being happy. I wanted what they had. I wanted it. I really, really did. And I was willing and I kept hearing in these meetings, there are three things There are three things that you've got to have in order to make it. You got to be open minded. You have to be willing. But most of all, you have to be honest. And I just really, really decided at that point I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be willing and I'm going to be open minded and I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. And I'm going to ask Gail to be my sponsor because I really feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. So I got up the nerve and several weeks later I asked her if she would be my sponsor and she said yes. And that began a journey of getting honest and getting real. And one of the first things that she had me do because I kept whining about my finances and the IRS. You know, the IRS had caught up with my ass from the the mail courier business. I mean, I'd gotten reported, I guess, with a 1099. I was treated like a 
subcontractor. I didn't even know what any of that meant. But I was crying and whining about my bills. And and Gail told me, she said, I want you to, you and Susan to get together with y'all's bills. Because Susan had a lot of past bills too. Credit cards, all that bullshit. She said, I want y'all to sit there beside a phone and take turns calling your creditors. You call one while she sits with you and then have her call one and you sit with her. And you call these people and you ask for a credit counselor. You ask for someone to help you. And you tell them that you're an alcoholic and that you screwed up, but that you want to make it right. And so Susan and I went in her bedroom down in her basement at her parents' house, and we spent a whole day calling these creditors. And I was so nervous and so scared and so sick because, see, I just throw the shit away. Like, you just throw it away and it'll go away. It's not going away. It's going to hunt you down. We sat together, and I'll never forget calling American Express because by now it was busted open. I couldn't use the card. It was, oh, it was bad. And I said, I just want to tell you that I'm an alcoholic and I abused this American Express card and I bought a lot of alcohol and I bought alcohol for people I didn't know and I really took advantage of it and now I'm trying to get sober and I got to make it right. And she said, how much money can you send? And I said, one dollar. And she kind of laughed and I said, I can send $1 a week. And no kidding, I prepared envelopes and I sent $1 a week. And I sent a dollar and a dollar and a dollar. And she said, okay, every time you send me anything, I want you to call me. And I built a relationship with this woman and I started sending these dollars and eventually, once I started getting some money together, I'd spent, send $10. And then it turned to 20 And then it turned to 50 And I continued until I paid that thing off. It was in the 5000s Of course, the minute it was paid off, they sent me another card, which was absurd. But that's kind of what they do. But things of this nature started happening with Gail, and I really felt like I was starting to work this program rather than just sit in there. But I would hear the old timers talk about the first year is a gift. You, be you better bask in this first year because it is a gift. And now to this day, I, I understand what they were talking about. Because the relationships that I was building, there were just such unbelievable stories of compassion, stories of love, stories of turmoil. Just, I'll never forget the things I learned during this first year. Well, Carol and I continued to sort of see each other. And then this one day I was at Silk Greenhouse at work and she came into the store and Rosemary, my boss, saw her and I introduced her and she brought me a Diet Coke with a straw in it. And Rosemary looked at me and go, she said, go on out. Y'all go take a break. Go on out in the back. 
And I went outside and we sat under a tree and I drank this Diet Coke. And I had all these butterflies in my stomach. Like I really, really liked her. And I had never in my entire life been with a person sober. I had never been with a female sober. I'd never been with anybody sober. And experiencing this feeling was all new. But I remember sitting under the tree and just talking to her. And it was like time just stopped. And I really felt like I was falling in love with somebody for the first time. Like in a real way that wasn't, you know, tainted with alcohol and drugs. And what was amazing about it was that Rosemary, my boss was supportive of me. She told me to go take a break with this woman. She told me to go relax. The thing about Rosemary is she was completely relaxed. Nothing stressed her out. I'd never been around a group of people that were just living life on life's terms and staying in the moment and enjoying each other's company. But I was scared to death because I thought, oh, God, they tell you in AA, one of the biggest things they tell you is do not get involved in a sexual relationship. Do not get in a love relationship. Do not get in a relationship, period, during the first year. Well, I wasn't to my first year mark yet. And I was very much intrigued with this person. And I'll never forget one afternoon she came over to my apartment. Vince wasn't there. And of course, Vince didn't know I was gay because I was sort of being sort of an asexual person. And she came over and I'll never forget. And she touched my arm and I had an electric shock go through my body. I will never forget the energy exchange that I had with this woman. I had never experienced anything like this in my entire life. And so I was so grateful that I was sober. And I was so grateful that I had feelings. And I was so grateful that somebody was interested enough in me to to reach out and to touch me. Carol's belief system was a lot different than mine, although she'd had a Catholic upbringing and she'd been an orphan. She was one of ten children. She had a horrific childhood. Her mother was pretty much insane and had gone in and out of Bellevue up in New York, the hospital known for the craziness. The sad part is that her mom probably had post-traumatic stress disorder from having too many damn kids, but... They didn't address that back this. They just put women and gave them shock treatments and stuff. But Carol was 17 years older than me. I was 24 and she was 42. But it didn't matter to me because the attraction I had to her was, was almost unbearable. She was like my teacher. And I'd heard in the meetings and they'd say things like, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Well, she appeared all right, and she told me about some of the things that she'd gone through, some of the trainings that she'd been in. She'd gone through S-training. 
she'd gone through the LRT, which was loving relationships training with Sandra Ray and Bob Mandel. She'd gone through trainings with Werner Earhart and and all these these forums and all these things. I I, I, I had no clue what she's talking about. But I was willing to listen, you know, and it was very interesting to me. I was learning stuff I had never heard. Now, there was a juxtaposition because I did not want to stray away from my AA teachings. And there were certain few times that she would mention that maybe it was brainwashing. And all I could say was, well, my brain needs washing. And that's only because I'd heard them say that in the meetings. I remember Big Ed, a big old fence builder, big old man. He had a big old white shirt. He always wore a white button down with tobacco stains on the front of it. He was this big fence builder, and he didn't have a tooth in his head. But that man had the most twinkling blue eyes I'd ever seen. And he'd always wink at me. And he'd say, at the end of the meetings, we would hold hands. And he would hold my hand. And he'd, he would clench it real tight. And he'd wink at me. And he'd say, everything's going to be all right, gal. Everything's going to be all right, gal. And I loved him. I loved him. And see, these were the people that were that were helping me and to groom me and to train me to be a human being that could help other people. They were giving me life. They were feeding me. I'll never forget in the very beginning when one afternoon I was coming down to go to the meeting and I stopped at Wendy's. And Wendy's used to have a salad bar, and it was pretty okay. I mean, you know, you're, I'm trying to be healthier. And, and it was when I had first moved to Marietta, and there was this gorgeous guy. And he was at the salad bar, and I'd seen him ride up on a 10-speed bicycle. And he was just built, and he was gorgeous. And he reminded me of my neighbor Brad. He had this blonde, curly hair, and... He was just, he was tan. He was so good looking. I couldn't even believe it. And we were both at the salad bar at the same time. And he kind of grinned at me and said, hey. And I said, hey. And I was so mortified. Oh, I just remember thinking I'm so embarrassed and so ashamed of myself. And, and so after I finished my Wendy's, I was going on to the meeting. And so I walk in. The first thing you do when you walk into the Rebos AA Club is you go straight to the coffee cups. There's like four million of them on these shelves. You grab a coffee cup and then you go to the coffee pot. And it's almost like this habit that you have to do because you're too scared to just walk in and go straight to a table to sit down. So you kind of have to warm up and lean into it, you know. So I go in, I get this cup of coffee, and I'm standing there pouring the coffee. And when I turn around, there was this guy, this gorgeous blonde guy from Wendy's. And he goes, hey, didn't I just see you at Wendy's? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. And it was Danny. And Danny was just one of those funnest, sweetest guys. And I couldn't believe how nice he was. Usually guys are real stuck up that look like that. Like, they're never going to talk to you or give you the time of day. And Danny had been sober a little bit over a year. 
but Danny, you know, he was from Savannah. He had rich parents, so he didn't have to worry that much about jobs. He was training for a triathlon, and he was just a really fun. He was always at the meetings. He was very nice to everybody, and, and Susan, my friend, and him started sort of having a crush on each other. One particular night, I'd been really crying about I didn't have the money to pay my car insurance, and I came out of the bathroom, and Danny was standing in the, the hallway of the bathroom, and he was real nervous, and he goes, hey, and I said, hey, and he goes, look, take this, and he hands me a $100 bill. I go, what for? And he goes, pay your car insurance with that, and I go, no, Danny. He goes, no, 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 you got to take it. You got to take it. He said, I have to do this. Something inside of me is telling me to do this. And I said, yeah, but Danny, I can't pay you back. He goes, you don't have to pay me back. He goes, just, just, you'll just pass it on. You just pass it on. One day you'll do it for somebody else. This is how this whole thing works, Jill. This is how this thing works. This is how the universe works. I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving it to myself. And oh my God, I remembered the lady at Kodak. And that's exactly what she had done. And I thought, is this stuff like for real? And it was, they were setting me up, see? They were training me. They were teaching me. In order to give to myself, I have to give to others. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I kept hearing them say, you have to get out of yourself. Well, one night, Carol and I started watching this show on TV and it was this mini-series on ABC. It was called Out on a Limb, starring Shirley MacLaine. And so we started watching this thing. And I loved Shirley MacLaine. And so did Carol. And Carol was real into movies and, and old actresses. And she knew so much more about it than I did. I thought I had the corner market, but she had me beat. Well, we're watching this Shirley MacLaine thing, and at one point, there's a part where Shirley MacLaine is standing on a beach, and she has this spiritual guide, who I'd never even heard that terminology, but he has her stand there, and he says, if God is within, then therefore, I must be God. And he makes her stand on a beach and he makes her close her eyes and hold her arms out and say to the sun, I am God. Well, let me tell you what, my Southern Baptist shit kicked in and I said, that's blasphemy. That's wrong. And Carol started saying, why are you, why are you so angry? And I said, that's just fucking wrong. Like that's, bla that's blasphemy. That's, that's really, that's wrong. And I, we got in a big fight about it. Well, we kept watching it, and I kept listening to it very deeply. Well, the next night, it, Shirley MacLaine in this thing, she goes to Peru. And I started thinking about, I wanted to go to Peru when I was nine years old. I was obsessed with Peru, and I didn't even know why. I was obsessed with the Machu Picchu and this and the rainforest and there were so many things that as a child I was drawn to. And I watched this journey on this mini series called Out on a Limb and I couldn't believe what I was watching and seeing and feeling. 
Next morning, I got on the phone at Silk Greenhouse and I called my mother. And I said, Mama, did you watch that thing on TV with Shirley MacLaine? Because, see, I knew my mother loved actresses, and she loved things like that. And Shirley MacLaine was a well-known actress of, of her day. And my mom says, yeah, you know, I did watch that. And I held my breath because I was ready for her to just blast it. And I said, well, what did you think? And I held my breath, and she answered, well, you know, all I could think was, wouldn't it be nice if it was that way? And it was as if my mother gave me permission to think differently. For the first time in my life, the guilt and the fear began to subside. My mother gave me permission to think of God or the universe or whatever the hell is out there in a totally different perspective. She gave me permission. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.